Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America, Willoughby Hills is a city in Northeast Ohio. Situated on 11 square miles on the west banks of the Chagrin River, it's an area with plenty of scenic parks, hiking trails, and stunning views just 20 miles west of Cleveland. Willoughby Hill's motto is, where the city meets the country, and it's easy to see why. With a population of around 10,000 people, Willoughby is relatively small compared to other cities in the state, but it is one of Lake County's fastest growing cities. It's a good place to raise a family, and there are many peaceful neighborhoods along the river where young couples settle down and make their homes. The houses on Chagrin Drive were built in the 1950s. Though most have been renovated, they still retain the old-style charm with bay windows and large decks, allowing residents to truly soak in the beauty of the river and the surrounding nature. Residents on Chagrin Drive were lucky enough to count on each other if anything went wrong. But some things occur behind closed doors that even the nosiest neighbors could never imagine. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Nina Instead, and welcome to Episode 60 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law and Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. It was a typical dark winter night on November 16, 2012. Temperatures in Willoughby Hills were barely above freezing when a frantic 911 call came in to the Willoughby Hills Police Department Dispatch Center at 1.15 a.m. The voice of an audibly terrified young girl came over the line. Through desperate screams, the call handler could just about understand what she was saying. 911, what's your emergency? You need to get off the radio, Julian. What is going on? Who had the knife? My sister and 
The call came in from 13-year-old Megan. Megan tells the dispatcher that her mother is going to die. She repeats that her mom is being stabbed as she screams to someone in the background and pleads with them to stop. The dispatcher asks Megan who was hurting her mother, and Megan responds, My sister. Officers were immediately sent to the scene of the act of assault, and patrolman Randolph Mullinax was among the first to arrive. As he approached the front of the green-paneled house, a young girl and a dog burst through the door and ran toward the patrol cars. Unsure of whether or not the girl was involved, the officers ordered her to stop and identify herself. It was Megan, and she told them her mom was still inside. She was still being stabbed. The officers made their way inside, unsure of what they were about to encounter. With their weapons drawn and fixed on the downstairs bedroom door, they watched as it slowly opened and a teenage girl walked into the hallway. She was covered in blood and holding a 12-inch knife in her hand. The officers ordered her to drop the weapon and get down on the floor, and she silently complied. As the bloodied suspect was being detained and examined for injuries, other emergency responders entered the bedroom where they found a woman with countless severe lacerations lying in a pool of blood between the bed and the wall. The teenage girl, Megan, who had witnessed stabbing her mother to death, was Lisa's foster daughter, 18-year-old Sabrina Zunich. Steve Lusick, a fireman and paramedic for the city of Willoughby Hills, found Lisa flatlining. They were unable to administer an IV because her veins had collapsed from blood loss and she was pronounced dead at the scene. Amid the chaos, the officers had heard muffled cries coming from the closet in the bedroom. Inside, they found Lisa's three-year-old daughter, Haley. The little girl was physically unharmed and was taken from the house to be with her sister. Sabrina Zunich was treated by paramedics for minor lacerations on her hands, the back of her neck, and her legs. She was unresponsive to questions and was taken to Westlake Hospital for treatment while the scene was sealed off. As investigators wondered what could have prompted such a brutal attack, they had to call Lisa's husband, Kevin, who was working as a truck driver in Michigan, and break the devastating news. Lisa Knapel was born May 2, 1971, in Reynoldsburg, Ohio. She had been married in the late 1990s when her eldest daughter, Megan, was born. But after her divorce in 2003, she met truck driver Kevin Knafel. They married in 2006 and had a baby girl, Haley, in 2009. She was a social worker with the Cuyahoga County Department of Children and Family Services in the Child Sex Abuse Unit since 2000. And upon hearing about her murder, the director of the department, Patricia Rideout, said, We learned this morning our colleague, Lisa, was murdered at her home. Lisa's commitment to children led her not only to us as a dedicated member of the DCFS family, but also to become a foster parent. Her heart and home were opened to a child who needed her. Lisa and Kevin had been fostering Sabrina Zunich for over a year through Lake County Child Services. 
Sabrina had been placed with the Knavels, who were licensed foster parents, in July 2011, and she had begun attending local South High School as a senior in the fall of 2012. Sabrina's biological mother suffered from addiction, and her biological father had been too unwell to care for her before he passed away. Sabrina had lived at the Cayley Home, a temporary youth shelter that provided care to children between the ages of 7 and 18. During her time at the shelter, Sabrina reportedly displayed problematic behaviors and signs of mental illness and disorders, including bipolar, insomnia, and ADHD. She was prescribed nine different medications to treat these issues, but her behavior and quality of life appeared to improve dramatically once she became part of the Knavel family. There were still some problems within the household, though. The chief of police revealed that they had been called out to the residence for nonviolent domestic situations before the murder, but this was common for foster families while teens with complex backgrounds adjusted to new homes. Chief Collins said, Everything we've heard is that she was trying to turn her life around, doing better in school. Nothing indicated anything like this. Chief Collins also praised Lisa's 13-year-old daughter, Megan, for trying to help her mother when she witnessed Sabrina attacking her. He stated, My understanding is she did try to intervene, but was pushed back and continued to call and try to get help to the scene. Forensic pathologist Dr. Joseph Andrew Fellow conducted the autopsy on Lisa's remains once they were taken from the scene to the medical examiner's office. He identified at least 178 wounds to her head, neck, torso, and extremities. Some of the wounds were described as complex, which he determined meant that the knife or the person wielding it was being twisted as the victim was stabbed. One injury inflicted on Lisa's jaw had penetrated at a downward angle, severing her carotid artery. Another penetrated her breast and caused her lung to collapse. A significant number of the stab wounds were musculoskeletal, vascular, and visceral. The injuries were consistent with the knife found at the scene. The nine-inch serrated blade had been forcefully bent and twisted during the attack. The blood spatter in Lisa's bedroom was consistent with a violent and frenzied attack. Blood was found in a cast-off pattern on the walls and the ceiling. There was also evidence that Lisa had tried to fight off the attack. Numerous defensive wounds were found on her hands, and two of her fingers had been almost severed. Sabrina Zunich was treated for minor injuries at the Lake West Hospital before being taken to the Willoughby Hills Police Department the following morning. She was brought to an interview room where she was questioned by Detective Ron Parmerter. Sabrina was asked what she could recall about the previous day. She remembered doing her homework and having a headache, but nothing else. When questioned about her relationship with her foster parents, Sabrina said she got on better with Kevin than with Lisa. She explained that Lisa had wanted her out of the house when she turned 18, but Sabrina had been allowed to stay until she graduated. Her relationship with her foster sisters varied. She told the detectives it was up and down with 13-year-old Megan, but 3-year-old Haley was her world. Detectives eventually broached the topic of Lisa's murder. They asked Sabrina what her thoughts were on Lisa not being alive. 
Sabrina seemed shocked and asked them what they meant. When she was told that she had been seen stabbing her to death, she broke down and asked if Megan and Haley were okay, and if they had seen her hurting their mom. She continued to say that she didn't remember killing Lisa, and asked if everything would be all right for everyone but her. The detectives told her, no, it's not going to be okay for a lot of people. Sabrina was placed under arrest and charged with murder before being taken to Lake County Jail without speaking about the incident. Six months would pass before the truth about Lisa's murder began to emerge. On May 6, 2013, Sabrina Zunich was brought to a proffer meeting between her defense counsel, the investigators, and the prosecution. The meeting was arranged in order to determine if Sabrina had information that would reduce her criminal responsibility. She said that she felt abandoned in the time between Lisa's murder and the proffer session because her foster father had not contacted her or supported her while she was in prison as she had expected him to. Sabrina told the investigators that he had promised her he would because it was his idea to kill Lisa. Sabrina stated that she had gotten along with Kevin better than she had gotten along with Lisa, and she found him to be more approachable as a foster parent. Sabrina had ambitions to study cosmetology after high school and wanted to become a massage therapist. She said that Kevin had asked her to massage him, and she agreed to do so in early 2012. Kevin was a truck driver and complained that the long hours of driving left him with pain in his thighs, so Sabrina would massage his thighs. Eventually, the massages progressed until there was contact with Kevin's genitals. She was 17 years old at the time. Over the months that followed, Sabrina and Kevin engaged in sexual contact almost on a daily basis, and four months before the murder occurred, they had sexual intercourse for the first time. Sabrina explained to investigators that she had developed feelings for Kevin. He had told her that he would divorce Lisa, and they could live together as a family with the couple's youngest daughter, Haley. When Sabrina began her senior year at South High School, Kevin would drive her to school each morning. During those drives, they would engage in sexual activity. The inappropriate relationship even continued when Sabrina was in a hospital room while admitted for appendicitis in September. 2012. Sabrina explained that Kevin told her at that time that he had life insurance policies on Lisa totaling over $750,000 and that his wife was worth more dead than alive. He told Sabrina that he wouldn't be able to get full custody of Haley if he divorced Lisa, so he began discussing having her killed instead. Lisa and Kevin had been arguing more at home. And in October 2012, Kevin asked Sabrina's social worker if he would be able to continue to be Sabrina's foster father if he divorced Lisa. Sabrina said that she felt as though Lisa suspected something was going on between her and Kevin, and Lisa had expressed that she wanted Sabrina to leave the home. Sabrina described how her friend, Autumn Pavlik, had been aware of Kevin's idea to kill Lisa. They had even spoken with Autumn about hiring a hitman. After Sabrina turned 18 in late October, Kevin began speaking about using a gun to kill Lisa. He told her that he could get a pistol that was untraceable, 
and she could muffle the sound of the gunshot with a pillow before hiding the gun in the garage for Kevin to dispose of. Kevin had even made plans to take Sabrina to a shooting range, but they couldn't go because Lisa had asked to go with them. Then they spoke about using a knife instead. Kevin had told Sabrina how to carry out the attack without getting caught. Kevin said that Sabrina should do it at night after Lisa fell asleep, but before the time Haley usually woke up and came into the bedroom. He told her to drive the knife between Lisa's shoulder blades if she was sleeping on her side, or stab Lisa in the throat if she was sleeping on her back. She was to twist and rotate the blade. Kevin said that Sabrina should wear tight clothing that covered her whole body and then leave them in a bag outside the garage. He also told her to make it look like a robbery by emptying out drawers and the jewelry box. Sabrina told the investigators that if she was caught, Kevin had told her to pretend she couldn't recall what had happened or to injure herself to make it look like self-defense. On November 15th, the morning before the murder, Kevin drove Sabrina to school as normal, and on the way there, he pulled over and began to cry and bang his head on the steering wheel in a state of distress. Sabrina told the investigators that Kevin broke down and said, I can't stand anymore, so I'm going to kill myself if she's not dead. In the early hours of November 16, 2012, Sabrina crept into Lisa's room with her phone illuminating the way and stabbed Lisa once before Lisa woke up and began to fight her off. 13-year-old Megan could hear the struggle, and the sound of the family dog barking brought her down to her mother's bedroom, where she saw Sabrina repeatedly stab Lisa. Megan had tried to get Sabrina to stop, but she was pushed away, and while Megan ran to the office to call 911, Sabrina had stabbed herself to make it look like self-defense. When the police arrived, she said she couldn't remember the attack. Investigators had already been suspicious of Kevin for a number of reasons. In the two weeks before Lisa's murder, there were almost 1,500 communications between Kevin and Sabrina, including calls and texts. On the night of the murder, from 7.12 p.m. until 12.46 a.m., there were 78 communications. On the morning of Lisa's murder, Kevin had come to the Willoughby Hills Police Station and spoke with Patrolman Mullinax, who had been the first officer at the scene. Kevin told Mullinax that he had been an EMT before and wanted to know every detail of Lisa's murder. That same morning, Kevin had called three insurance agencies to ask for the necessary forms to file a claim for Lisa's life insurance. He also contacted the trade union for Lisa's place of employment to inquire about the policy she had with them. That afternoon, Kevin spoke with his longtime friend, David Strunk, and asked him to bring the life insurance forms over to his mother's house. He also asked David to shut down Lisa's social media and email accounts so he didn't have to deal with people leaving messages. Kevin had contacted the police and inquired about Sabrina's location and asked about visiting her. He told David that he wanted to go to the jail to make sure she was okay and to let her know that he was still there for her and he hadn't given up on her. The following morning, David brought Kevin to Lake County Jail where Sabrina was being held. The corrections officer told Kevin that Sabrina did not have any more visiting time available that morning, and Kevin became upset and insisted that he needed to speak with her. 
He also asked who had been to see her before. Kevin said, You don't understand. I do need to see her because I'm her foster father. Kevin tried giving the officer a note to pass to Sabrina when visitation was refused. When informed that they couldn't pass on the note, Kevin contacted Sabrina's biological relatives and asked them to let Sabrina know he would be there for her. By the afternoon of the day following Lisa's murder, Kevin went to the home and met with Detective Brian Jackson. Kevin told Detective Jackson that he wanted to enter the house. Despite the detective encouraging him not to because the scene had not been cleaned up, Kevin insisted he wanted to see it for himself. Kevin told the detective that he wanted to have the house cleaned and Lisa's belongings removed. He arranged to meet with a cleanup company that evening. Joe Becca, a field specialist with Rainbow International, a remediation and trauma scene cleanup company, met with Kevin and recalled that Kevin said the cost did not matter as he had a $250,000 life insurance policy. Kevin also asked the cleaners to look for a finger and a ring in the bedroom. Within two days of the murder, all of Lisa's belongings were removed from the home. Throughout each interaction, Kevin's demeanor was reported to be calm and emotionless. In December 2012, the investigators spoke to David Strunk about Kevin. David told them that he had known Kevin for 16 years, and he and his family had accompanied the Knafels on a camping trip a few months earlier. Sabrina had also attended the trip. At one point over the weekend, Kevin confided in David and told him that he and Lisa were having problems. They were fighting a lot, and Lisa had accused him of having an affair with Sabrina. Kevin told David that he was thinking about a divorce. David also recalled that Kevin had shown him modeling photos of Sabrina and told him that Sabrina had picked out underwear for him for the trip. A few days after Lisa's death, David had asked Kevin if he had an inappropriate relationship with Sabrina, but Kevin quickly changed the subject and ignored the question. Investigators contacted Sabrina's friend, Autumn Pavlik, who had moved to California a month before the murder. Autumn told the police that she had spoken to both Sabrina and Kevin about the murder plot. She agreed to cooperate with the police to try and get a taped admission from Kevin in the summer of 2013. In a recording made on July 10, 2013, Kevin does not deny or admit to planning Lisa's murder. In the eight months since his wife was stabbed to death, Kevin had spent the money he got from her life insurance policies on paying off his mortgage, buying new cars, and even flying lessons. On August 8, 2013, a Lake County grand jury returned an 11-count indictment charging Kevin Knafel with six counts of sexual battery, two counts of conspiracy to commit aggravated murder, and two counts of complicity to aggravated murder. The following day, Kevin was arrested in the bedroom that Sabrina used to sleep in. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Kevin Knafel's trial began at the Lake County Common Pleas Court in Painesville, Ohio, in June of 2014. Opening the trial for the prosecution, Assistant Prosecutor John O'Donnell told the jury that Kevin had seduced his foster daughter and then planted the idea of murdering Lisa in her mind. The defendant did nothing but put his own concerns and his own self-gratification right there in front. There was a day that the defendant came home and he complained that his legs were sore. He was sitting in the truck all night driving, and he asked Sabrina to massage his legs, which she did. The prosecutor explained that after the inappropriate sexual relationship developed, Kevin used his position of power and Sabrina's feelings for him to convince her to kill Lisa so they could be together. Kevin's defense attorney, Michael Connick, told the court that the state's case was fiction and that Sabrina had killed Lisa on her own because she was resentful of the fact that Lisa wanted her to leave. The defense attorney told the jury, she stabbed her, as the coroner will testify, at least 178 times. I challenge any of you to do something you like 178 times, to get a perspective to the rage that Sabrina Zunick had. Mr. Connick said that Sabrina had made a deal with the prosecutors in exchange for a reduced sentence. He told the court, She is going to be rewarded for implicating Kevin Knafel. She is going to be rewarded for being the only person to have a story that connects Kevin Knafel to the butchering of his wife. Testimony from Lisa's friends and co-workers was heard. Erica Gator, Lisa's supervisor at the sex crimes unit in the DFCS, told the court that she saw a photograph of Sabrina on the fridge at Kevin's mother's house when she stopped by to pass on her condolences. She told the court that she was stunned by Kevin's behavior. As he acted completely normal, she said, I assumed he would appear sorrowful or upset, some type of emotion to Lisa being murdered. Kevin had also commented about the loss of Lisa's income, telling her friend that 50000 is a lot to make up. The medical examiner told the court that the injuries he saw at autopsy were the most number of stab wounds he had seen in almost 17 years in pathology. When asked why there were so many cuts, Dr. Philo said, It could be because the decedent was fighting. It could be because the person who was doing the cutting is hesitant and not clear of the most effective part of the body to cut. And certainly, it could be because of passion. Typically, if the decedent and assailant know each other, 
there is some violence or rage associated with that. Sabrina's social worker, Nicole Corbett, testified that she had known Sabrina since 2010 when she was placed in county custody. After her unruly behavior meant she could no longer live with her biological grandmother. Ms. Corbett told the court that Sabrina was excited to be moving in with the Knafels as it meant she would be living in a family home. In October 2012, a month before the murder, Ms. Corbett had made a home visit to see if Sabrina wanted to remain in the custody of the county and live with the Knafels after her 18th birthday. Sabrina had said that she did. Ms. Corbett testified, She was doing very well. She was on target with school. She was happy. She was energetic and talking very positively about her future and all the things she was planning to accomplish. Kevin's friend, David Strunk, testified about Kevin's behavior after Lisa was killed and described that he wanted to visit Sabrina in jail. David told the court, This was the person that just killed his wife, and I was shocked he wanted to have any contact with her. He said he wanted to make sure she was okay and let her know he was still there for her and hadn't given up on her. On the fourth day of the trial, Sabrina Zunich took the stand. She had not yet been indicted on murder charges, but she was still being held in jail since the night of her arrest at the scene. Sabrina told the jury that she had been in a sexual relationship with Kevin Knafel since early 2012 and she was in love with him. She spoke about the conversation that prompted Lisa's murder as she was being driven to school on November 15th. She stated, Kevin started breaking down crying in the car, saying he just couldn't take it anymore. He said, I'm going to kill myself if she's not dead. I fell in love with him. He was going to commit suicide if she was not killed. I said, I'll do it. He told me we could have our own house. I could go to college and be a mother to Haley. I was overjoyed because it was the life I always dreamed of. Sabrina claimed that Kevin had manipulated her and instructed her on how to kill Lisa. She knew she had to do it to stop him from killing himself. Sabrina said she had been texting Kevin in the hours leading up to the murder as she worked on a school project. She told the jury, I had to get it done because it was due the next day. I planned to go to school the next day because I wasn't planning on getting caught. Sabrina described how she put on a ski mask, gloves, long pants, and a hooded top so she wouldn't get blood on her before grabbing the knife Kevin had suggested she use and walking into Lisa's bedroom with just the screen of her cell phone illuminating the way to Lisa's bed where she lay sleeping. She testified that she had hoped just one stab wound would kill Lisa but Lisa sat up and began fighting for her life. Sabrina told the court, she said briefly, stop, and ripped off my ski mask. Sabrina testified that she just continued to stab and cut Lisa over 170 times because she was doing what she had been told to do and knew she was going to jail. She explained that she cut herself and pretended to not remember the murder because Kevin had advised her to do that if she got caught. She admitted she had killed Lisa, but told the court, I want justice to be served. I want him to serve a sentence because I am not the only one to do this. Testimony was heard from Sabrina's juvenile probation officer, Melissa Jivak. Ms. Jivak said that she received a call from Kevin Knafel in July or August 2012, during the time the alleged sexual relationship was occurring in secret. 
Ms. Jivak told the court about Kevin's call. He was extremely upset and agitated, and his voice was raised. He was upset she was seeing someone who was 19 or 20. He no longer wanted her to see him. He wanted me to talk to her because she was not listening to him. Ms. Jivak did speak to Sabrina about it, and Sabrina had begun to cry when she was told that Kevin was upset. Both Sabrina and the probation officer couldn't understand what the big deal was, but Sabrina agreed to abide by Kevin's rules as she was under 18. Sabrina's aunt, Frances Corley, testified that Sabrina had been in her grandmother's care since the age of three because her parents were alcoholics. When Sabrina became a teenager, she was rebellious and would manipulate her grandmother and steal from her. Ms. Corley also said that she had been suspicious of Kevin Knafel's intentions when he set up a bank account for Sabrina and borrowed $3,000 from her before Lisa was killed. When she heard that Lisa had been murdered, Ms. Corley called Kevin, she told the court. He told me to tell Sabrina he loved her and wasn't giving up on her. Closing arguments began on June 10th, 2014. Defense attorney Michael Connick referred to Sabrina and said, The entire case revolves around you believing what Sabrina Zunich testified to, to be true. The woman you would have to believe to reach a conviction stood over another human being and continued to stab her and slice her while that human being was begging for her life. Keep in mind that the woman you have to believe to return any conviction had a 13-year-old girl put a hand on her shoulder at the time that her mother was being murdered, saying, please stop, please don't do this. Mr. Connick explained that his client had been treated for mental illness since the age of six and had acted of her own free will when she killed Lisa. Karen Cowell for the prosecution argued that there was compelling evidence that Kevin had manipulated Sabrina into believing that killing Lisa would allow them to live together with Haley when Kevin got the money from Lisa's life insurance policy. Cowell told the jury, what drove her to commit this crime was the defendant putting the knife in her hand, figuratively, and pushing her into that room with the sole purpose to end his wife's life. She did it because she was immature, she was a child, and she was misguided based on her trust and love for the defendant that he took advantage of and capitalized on. The prosecutor reminded the jurors that Kevin had called to cash in on life insurance policies within 12 hours of Lisa's murder. With the money he received, Kevin bought a home, a pickup truck, two new cars, and a camper. Cowell also spoke about how Kevin walked through his wife's blood without any reaction on the morning after the murder, and then proceeded to get rid of all her belongings without keeping anything for Lisa's daughters. She told the jury, Not only the crime in this case is shocking, but it's shocking how quickly the defendant tried to erase her existence after this crime. The jury returned the following day after nine and a half hours of deliberation. They found Kevin Knafel guilty of all charges. Lisa's ex-husband and the father of her daughter, Megan, was present through the trial. Nick Zanella spoke after the verdict and said, Justice has been served. He did a heinous act and took advantage of people. Now Lisa can rest. A sentencing hearing was held on August 6th. Lisa's former partner, Nick Zanella, addressed the court before the presiding judge, Joe Gibson, passed sentence. I'd like to say um, 
Lisa, we miss you. And uh, you, Kevin, what a piece of crap you are. Yes, Mr. Zanoff, I realize your emotions are great, but I would ask that you please restrain yourself and just address you are a weak individual. Objection, Your Honor. Mr. Zanoff, continue. And there are two girls that go through pain every day because of him. He thought he could do some heinous act that would take someone's life away from two little girls. And I hope, Judge, that you will give him the maximum sentence. Because my daughter and my daughter's sister think about their mother every day. And I sure hope that you think about what you did in jail. And I hope you rot in jail the rest of your life. The prosecution had explained there were two victims in the case, Lisa and Sabrina. In response, Kevin's attorney retorted and said, for the state to suggest Sabrina is a victim in this case is as absurd as the jury's verdict. Mr. Zanella was later ejected from the court after he laughed while Kevin's attorney was being admonished before telling the attorney, fuck you. Told you had an opportunity to speak. Excuse me, Mr. Zanella just told, said yeah. fuck you to me, Your Honor. Mr. Connick, you're turning this into something I'm not going to let you do. I'm not. I'm going to ask you to sit down, Mr. Connick. Very sit well. Sit down now, please. Very well, Your Honor. Make another comment. You're out of the court. Mr. Zanella, leave the court. Leave the court, please. Kevin Knafel was sentenced to 30 years in prison with a consecutive sentence of 12 years for the sexual battery counts. He was ordered to be classified as a Tier 3 sex offender. In July 2014, Sabrina Zunich was charged with aggravated murder. The following month, she pleaded guilty to the charge and told Judge Richard L. Collins Jr., I stabbed Lisa Knafel to death with the cooperation of Kevin Knafel. In September of that year, Sabrina was sentenced to 30 years in prison with the possibility of parole. Sabrina's attorney, Charles Grishammer, told the judge that Sabrina had been an intelligent and good person who had mental health issues and a difficult upbringing, which left her susceptible to Kevin Knafel's manipulation. The defense attorney said, Had she been placed in a loving foster home, she might have made it. She had fallen in love with this older man. Kevin told her Lisa hated her. She was sent to the absolute worst place for her. Kevin hijacked her future. Speaking before the sentence was passed, Sabrina described how sorry she was and how Lisa was not deserving of what happened. I ask forgiveness be given to me, not for my benefit, but for those who need the healing process to begin. I can't explain how much remorse I have and how much sadness I deal with. Judge Collins concluded that while he had considered Sabrina's upbringing and the events that led to the murder, he had to sentence her based on the crime. He remarked, The gruesome, shocking, and revolting nature of the crime was among the worst I've seen. Aggravated murder is aggravated murder. But this was not a single violent act. She was screaming for help and begging the defendant to stop. She did not die immediately. I cannot imagine the nature of terror and fear. Kevin Knafel has attempted to appeal his conviction without success since he was sentenced in 2014. A wrongful death lawsuit has been filed against Kevin and Sabrina 
in November 2013. Four years later, a Lake County Common Pleas judge awarded $6.2 million in damages to Lisa's daughters, Megan and Haley, who had witnessed the brutal murder and had been undergoing therapy for years as a result. The girl's attorney, Michael C. Lucas, said, There is no medical formula to quantify the loss of your mother, especially when you had to see it happen. Kevin Knafel's assets were sold to satisfy the $1.2 million judgment against him. Both Sabrina Zunich and Kevin Knafel remain behind bars. Sabrina will be eligible for parole in 2042, when she will be 47 years old. Kevin will be eligible for parole the following year, when he is 73 years old. This episode was researched and written by Eileen McFarlane, editing and scoring by Corey Hiltman, script editing, additional writing, and production direction by Rosanna and Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law & Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. We will be back next week. Thank you for listening, and please be safe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.